This is the current federal tax developments for the week of August the 29th, 2022. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state Society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, and this week from Phoenix, we're going to take a look at some of the stuff that has happened in taxes this week. First, we'll take a look at the development that actually comes from a couple weeks back, where a estate formed a charitable remainder trust on the death of the decedent. And we're going to discover that a term specifically in there ended up causing the estate to lose uh, basically part of the deduction. The theory was that being a CRT with the surviving spouse as a beneficiary and, you know, the basically the income beneficiary who gets the unit trust amount and the charity as the charitable beneficiary, the theory was that this trust would obviously get either the charitable contribution deduction or it would get the... Um, marital deduction, at least portions of it would get each. We'll discover how terms got inserted in the trust ended up causing the estate to have a portion of the unit trust amount, the present value of that unit trust amount, considered to fail to qualify for either deduction, although per the terms of the trust, it clearly had to go either to the surviving spouse or to the charity. So we'll talk a little bit about that case. We're going to have what's probably the big story of the week, the IRS releasing penalty relief for 2019 and 2020 returns. It's a very broad-based relief, covers failure to file penalties and some other items. We'll talk about what it is, the returns it impacts, as well as maybe some of the implications. And we'll also discuss a blog post by the National Taxpayer Advocate who explained that expanded IRS penalty relief and answered a couple of questions that a lot of people had after the relief was first published. But with that, let's go ahead and talk about Chief Counsel Advice 2022-33014, issued on August the 19th. This is a case of a charitable remainder unit trust established at the decedent's death. For those who may not be used to what a charitable remainder unit trust is, it is a situation where the Internal Revenue Code allows you, for either income tax charitable deduction purposes or for estate tax charitable deduction purposes to create a split interest trust where we're going to leave part of the trust to charity on a future basis. The charity gets the remainder interest of the trust and an income beneficiary will get an income stream. In a unit trust standpoint, it's going to be a stream based on a percentage of the value of the trust measured annually. In the case of annuity trust, which is a charitable remainder annuity trust or CRAT, it would be a fixed rate of return. That would come back to that person every year. If you structure it this way, unlike most cases, you're allowed to take a deduction for charitable as a charitable deduction for, in this case, it would be for the estate tax, but income tax works the same way if you establish it during life. You're able to take a deduction equal to the value of, you know, the discounted value of that remainder interest. Similarly, you know, in this case, leaving, you know, the income beneficiary of the charitable remainder trust being the decedent surviving spouse, we'll also discover in that situation you can get a deduction, the marital deduction for transfers to your spouse at your death would also count there. So none of the CRT would essentially be subject to estate taxes. However, 
this particular trust had a unique uh, set of terms. Instead of saying the unit trust amount would be paid out to the surviving spouse on an annual basis, this trust said 25% of that unit trust amount every year had to be paid to the surviving spouse. But the trust allowed the trustee to choose between paying the other 75%. It could be paid to either the surviving spouse or the charity, and apparently could be divided between them. So in essence, it could go either way. Now, you might think, well, okay, obviously every dollar from this trust is going to end up going to either a charity, and we know transfers at death to a charity are excluded from estate taxes or a deduction, or it's going to my surviving spouse and transfers to my spouse are also excludable. So doesn't this thing get to be fully excluded from my estate? Can I just ignore it, right? And the answer the IRS gave us was a little more complicated. The problem is that 75% of the unit trust amount is going to be a problem. The IRS did rule in the chief counsel advice that the amount being left at the end of the trust of the charity, you know, the remainder beneficiary amount, so what would be there at the end of the trust term, that the value of that still qualifies for the charitable deduction. There's no problem here with this unit trust having this structure. So that much, the discounted value in the future of the charity is fine. As well, they said the value of the 25% of the unit trust that's being paid to the surviving spouse, well, the discounted value of that, that is going to be allowed as a marital deduction to the estate. But the 75% of the unit trust, because it could be payable to either, it can't qualify for either exclusion. It can't qualify for the marital exclusion because it might not go to the surviving spouse, and it cannot qualify for a charitable deduction because it may not go to the charity. And the fact it would go to somebody, you know, who would be an excludable party to receive it, that to the IRS, sorry, the rules just don't quite work that way. You're not allowed to structure in that form. And the court said a similar situation would arise in the case of a gift. Uh, in that case, your main concern would probably be uh, the charitable contribution and trying to get a charitable contribution for part of that 75%. But as I said, it doesn't work because again, no guarantee that that would go there. So now we have a quirky trust problem and you know, it seems like there was work done here. I suspect somebody was trying to argue that because it had to go to somebody who to either a charity or an individual that would qualify for an exclusion if we left it directly to them, that therefore either you know, the charity or the estate should get some sort of deduction. But the IRS says, no, the law doesn't work that way. You've got to qualify for, you got to pick your, pick the one. If you want to claim the deduction, you've got to pick the right one of the two. It doesn't matter that all of them would qualify under these rules for the exception, because that's not how this works. You've got to let us know which one are we going for. Next up, what was actually the big story of the week? Notice 2036, 2022, I should say 36, 
issued on August the 24th. And this is relief provided by the IRS in this notice for specified 2019 and 2020 taxable year returns. As you may be aware, the IRS is way behind in processing returns. And being way behind in processing returns, some of these they have notices on. These notices are not being responded to very quickly by the IRS, which causes more correspondence to come in. When people write about a notice, the correspondence backs up. This becomes in a self-fulfilling kind of situation where essentially the fact they're not getting to the responses to notices brings in more responses because the computer keeps kicking out follow-up things like you haven't yet paid this penalty that we assessed against you, you know, or that we're planning to assess against you, you haven't responded, and so we want to move forward, and of course that sets everybody back, means people try to call the IRS on the phone, generally have trouble getting through, or if you get through, they will give you an extension of time for a few weeks. Uh, and the problem is that during those few weeks, there is no way the IRS is getting to the original correspondence. So then you're back on the phone trying again to get another extension. So the IRS is essentially going to try the equivalent of just deleting all your e emails and to get rid of your unread emails, right? We're just going to get rid of all of these certain penalties that relate to 19 and 20. And by doing that, clear out a bunch of what's sitting there currently in the correspondence. So this is where it's going to go. Now realize not all penalties are covered and not all returns are covered. The big things that are covered are late filing penalties under 6651A1. That's important to understand, right, which ones are covered in this program. But under this program, what you're going to find out is we have a bunch of in this case, 1040 series returns, right? Those 1040 series returns will include the standard form 1040 U.S. individual income tax returns, but will also include form 1040C, form 1040NR, 1040NREZ, form 1040PR, form 1040SR, the seniors return, can't forget that, 1040SS, all of those 1040 series forms are covered by this for the failure to file penalty. As well, we have a series of 1041 forms. That includes your standard form 1041 fiduciary return, but also 1041N, 1041QFT, right? All of those issues in that realm that we have in that regard, right? They're all covered by this too. Finally, we also have the form 1120 series. And that includes Form 1120 itself, 1120C, 1120F, 1120FSC, 1120H, 1120L, 1120ND, 1120PC, 1120POL, 1120REIT, 1120RIC, 1120SF. Also in this relief is Form 1066, U.S. Real Estate Mortgage Investment Conduit Income Tax Returns, the Form 990-PF, the Return to Private Foundations, or Section 4947-A1 Trust, treated as a private foundation, and Form 990-T, Exempt Organization Business Income Tax Returns, and the Proxy Tax under Section 6033-E. Now, note that there are a few things missing there. These are only the returns where there could be the 6651-A1 
5% per month late up to 25% of tax due penalty involved. And so for that reason, we have, for instance, the 990PF, the 990T, but we don't have just the plain old 990, which by the way is not included anywhere in this notice. You also don't have, at least in this initial part, the Form 1120S or the Form 1065. Now, those actually are covered, and we'll find those in essence. The IRS tells us that we are going to get a waiver of penalties here under 6698A2 for failure to show required information and 6698A1 on a 1065 partnership return. So the failure to file the return timely, the failure to provide the proper information on the K-1s, and the similar pair of penalties found at 6699A1 and 6699A2, that would apply to an S corporation. Okay, Those are also in this mix of where we're going to get some relief. There also are a number of information return issues involved. A uh, couple of them, failure to timely file international information returns uh, that, are, that will be abated, includes the penalties that are systematically assessed when a Form 5471 information return of U.S. persons with regard to certain foreign corporation and or Form 5472 information return of a 25% foreign owned U.S. corporation or a foreign corporation engaged U.S. trade or business is attached to a late filed 1120 or 1065. Note the caveat there, it's got to be one that goes with a 1120 or a 1065. Also, penalties assessed by the campus programs with respect to filing on Form 3520, the annual return to report transactions with foreign trusts and receipt of certain foreign gifts, and on Form 3520A, the annual information return of foreign trusts with U.S. owner under Section 6048B. Right. But finally, we're going to have a number of information returns where the IRS will pause the penalties there. Now, in these cases, we'll, we'll see how it goes. These will be for 2019 and 2020. Now, bottom line, to get this relief, except for these last set of information returns, you must have the return filed no later than September 30 of 2021, or 2022, I should say. So there's still some time if a client has not yet filed their 2019 or 2020 Form 1040, there's still time to get that filed and come under this relief program. So be aware of that. That sitting there, it could bail out some clients who maybe it has nothing to do currently with IRS processing. They just, you know, they just haven't got it done. You'd want to try to get that return done in the next month, right? Get those 19 and 20. It only covers 19 and 20. So if they fail to file other years, don't, yeah, that's not going to help. But you want to get 19 and 20 filed if you can to get that together, right? That, that should help you get that done. Now, for the information returns, the 1099s, there the 2019 versions, uh, you know, essentially had to be filed on or before August 1st of 2020, and the 2020 ones had to be filed on or before August 1st of 2021. There are some exceptions here. It doesn't apply to anything. No return or no specific penalty that they didn't mention here. It doesn't apply. Also, doesn't apply if you have fraudulent you know, fraudulent return penalties will kick them out too. They don't qualify. Now, the penalty relief will be automatic. That means if somebody has already had the penalty assessed and paid the penalty, there will be refund checks being issued. Now, those refund checks being issued 
are going to supposedly come out to clients by the end of September. That's the plan right now. Now, they expect 1.6 million taxpayers uh, essentially to be involved in this and be getting these and be involved in the waiver. And they expect the uh, total refunds will be over 1.2 billion. So it's a expensive, you know, it's, I guess, somewhat expensive. What's only a billion to the U.S. You know, US Treasury these days? But it is a program taking advantage of that. If your client, you know, has already, you know, like I said, if they paid the temp penalty, that should be refunded. If they haven't paid the penalty uh, and the IRS hasn't moved yet, in theory, it will be waived. Note that because all of this is supposed to be done automatically, you're not to file any sort of additional paperwork or documents at this point to attempt to come under this. If they miss you, then I think is when you're going to have to step up and say, hey, IRS, you know, we qualified for this relief and you didn't give it to us and mention that little detail just to see how this will work. But in any event, interesting relief there. Now, it didn't answer, though, all of our questions. We had some issues about other things that might be involved. And this is where we get to the next development. The National Taxpayer Advocate issued on her blog, she published a new line, the IRS is automatically providing late filing penalty relief for both 2019 and 2020 tax returns. Taxpayers do not need to do anything to receive this administrative relief. It was published on the National Taxpayer Advocate blog. It was also published on the 24th of August. And this goes into some more details and deals with some issues and some questions you might have about this program that presumably she has the authority to speak on behalf of the IRS in this area. So, you know, keep track of that. Certainly keep track and make a copy of this blog post because if, in fact, the IRS decides to play hardball with you down the line, uh, you might want to be able to point out, no, 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 according to this, you are going to do it this way. And at least if you want to go to the Taxpayers Advocates Office, you could course, use this blog to help you do this. One of the key things which the National Taxpayer Advocate notes about this penalty is something I was asked about by a number of people when they first published this. It waives the failure to file penalty under 6651A1, but it does not say anything about the failure to pay under 6651A2. Now, the failure to pay penalty, remember, normally, if a client owes money, you know, owed money, let's say, at April 15th, and they didn't file the return and didn't file for an extension, they would owe a late payment penalty equal to 5%, right, of the amount due on the return times the number of months or partial months that the return was late up to five months, so up to 25%. The failure to pay penalty applies whenever, even with an extension, a valid extension, you have failed to pay the tax due on a timely basis, and that is one half of 1% per month up to a maximum of 25%. Obviously, that takes a lot longer than five months to max out, you know, and get you up to the full 5%. But there also is a general rule that says the combination of those two penalties cannot exceed 5% in any single month. And that has the knack of pushing the failure to, the failure to file penalty is actually pushed back so it really rolls in effectively over six months the way that works.
but so but you don't get hit with both at the same time. However, normally, obviously, if you have a failure to file penalty, 5% of a number tax due, that would also mean at the same time there was a failure to pay, right? It's going to be difficult to have the failure to file with this 25% calculate with this 5% per month calculation without having a failure to pay. The guidance notes that this relief did not cover failure to pay. So if your client has a failure to pay penalty, this automatic relief will not help there. If they did, if they were late filing, yes, we'll get rid of the late filing penalty, but remember half a percent per month each month of that, which you might've thought of as the late filing 5%, was really late payment. And that late payment portion will hang around. Now, it's nicer to get rid of the late filing. If you got to, you only lose one of the two, I'll take late filing any day. But late payment's not here. For late payment, you're going to have to show reasonable cause to get out of the payment. That's the first key issue to understand. Next, I'm gonna talk about some of the mechanics of the relief program. And these are explained by her in her post. Uh, it commenced on August the 25th, automatically provides the filing relief without the need for taxpayers to request relief and will continue to be applied to returns through September, received through September 30th. Notices and refunds are being initiated currently, she said, and many of the refunds will be completed by the end of September. Certain penalties, she notes, such as those associated with late filing 3520 and 3520A will take somewhat longer to process. So you have a client with a late filed 3520 or 3520A, that one will not necessarily be all nicely cleaned up by the end of September. As noted, if penalties have been assessed, they'll be removed. If a request for abatement was denied, it will now be automatically granted. If the abatement or removal of penalties generates a refund, it will first be applied to any outstanding liabilities, and then the balance will be paid by check and mailed to the taxpayer's current address in the IRS system. So it's important to have your address updated. There is no option for getting a direct deposit of this refund, nor is there any option to get a debit card. I guess hopefully the good news is that means they won't just send a debit card, because remember we had fun with that back in 2020 when they started just sending debit cards every so often for people for their economic impact payment. Right. In very rare circumstances, she notes, a small percentage of taxpayers will receive their refund via direct deposit. But the overwhelming majority of refunds will be distributed via check. Now, she doesn't explain what situations would lead to the direct deposit. Um, I Maybe if you had the numbers, on, if you had direct deposit already set up on the 1040 and you still got nailed with this penalty, maybe that works. But it seems basically, generally she says it's not going to be there. It's not going to work. Now, finally, something which I also had questioned quite a bit was what happens about first-time abatement. For those who haven't ever done first-time abatement penalty relief, it is very limited, right? It does apply to failure to file. It applies to certain payroll tax deposits. There are a limited set of penalties that you can get FDA out of. Generally, a taxpayer who has not had a one of these category of penalties applied in the prior three years can get what's called first-time abatement. This is in the IRS's penalty guide in the uh, Internal Revenue Manual. 
so you can read about it. You And if you haven't ever done so, I strongly suggest you do, because it's really important to know how this thing works and knows what is and isn't. Too often I find people who have heard about FTA have no idea where it's documented and think it applies to every penalty. It doesn't. It's very restricted what it applies to. But you should also note that according to the Internal Revenue Manual, if it applies, it must be, you know, in essence, the taxpayer doesn't get to choose whether or not they're going to use their FTA. And people look at it that way, right? Once every three years, you have the right to use the FTA, right? Assuming you haven't paid penalties in the interim. So you have to go three years clear. Now the question arises, let's say a taxpayer had gotten in this program, right? Now, th this was one where, let's say, they're in a position, FTA would work, FTA could have waived the late payment, the late filing penalty. And if the IRS employee works the penalty correctly and follows the procedures, then that penalty should have been waived the minute you wrote the IRS and said, hey, wait, 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 you know, want to talk about this penalty. They should have waived it under first-time abatement. Now, the good news there was your client didn't know the penalty. The bad news there was you burned your FTA. And so you're going to have to wait another three years to use it again. The question came, since the IRS is now going back and saying we're just going to skip these penalties on 19 and 20 entirely, what does that do to your first-time abatement possibilities in future years? And the taxpayer advocate says, essentially, you're not going to lose your FTA. This won't count as burning your option to use an FTA for three years because you go through this program or you go through this waiver. If your client had already received a first-time abatement, they're supposed to have the slate wiped clean. So it's just gone, the penalty's out of there, and the first-time abatement should be cleared. Now, I don't know if I believe how well that's going to work, you know, whether the IRS will really be able to properly pick that up, and, you know, whether, in fact, it's all going to be nice and simple and work out. That's to be determined, and that's why I'd keep a copy of this blog. But at least, in theory, your client should be open. So let's say if they late-filed 21 return, so they didn't get an extension in, and they got 19, 20, and 21, you could file 19 and 20 under this program by September 30. And in theory, if they hadn't been late before, they, they don't have any disqualifying penalties, you could use then first-time abatement on the 21 return. That's my understanding of what the uh, taxpayer advocate is saying in her blog post. So you may want to take a look at that, consider what's going on, and consider you know, how this will impact your clients. They do not want you writing at this point. Obvious reason that this is meant primarily not so much to make it easier on taxpayers, but to take work off the IRS so they could conceivably catch up here. And because we've got a problem right now is they're not really catching up on the backlog. So what they're doing is essentially just shredding the background, the backlog, getting rid of those penalties, not pursuing them giving you a get-out-of-jail-free card for those penalties. Because, again, none of this depends on whether your client was actually, you know, filed late because, you know, they had reasonable cause or they filed late because they are just lazy. They're still going to get this out. Cause It doesn't matter unless it was for fraud and tax evasion. If they just didn't file, it should be fine under this structure. So, you know, keep that in mind. And, you know, be ready for this. 
and also be ready for clients who may call you if they have paid. You might want to warn them they should get a refund because otherwise they'll probably be on the phone to you right away when the check comes in. Well, this has been the current federal tax developments here for the week of August the 29th, 2022. Uh, current federal tax developments brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. Again, I'm Ed Zollers, and I do go ahead and I do check emails, edzollers at currentfulltaxdevelopments.com. If you want to send me a quick question there, I also monitor the uh, Connect site for Arizona, New Jersey, Minnesota, uh, Illinois, and Washington, or the discussion board for the Idaho Society. So if you remember one of those societies, you have a question, you can post to their boards. And if I see it and I think I can help, I will see about responding. Otherwise, we are now going one more week. We're going to be in September when we get back. It'll be after Labor Day, which, of course, we all know means Labor Day means the beginning of the total panic of drop-dead deadline days for tax returns. So I hope you all are all up to speed on your S-Corporations partnerships, have your trusts and estates already in place, and understand the individual stuff also all needs to get out of here by the middle of October. So all of that fun left to come. We all know how great the year's been probably. And uh, yeah, that ought to be a real interesting run to the deadline this year. But otherwise, we will look forward to seeing you next week when we'll talk to you about more current federal tax developments.